The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Here we go, another episode of the History of Literature. Oh boy, this is a long-awaited, often requested one. Jorge Luis Borges, that Argentinian master. If you're selecting authors to define the 20th century in world literature, I think he's very high on your list. Who else? Maybe Joyce, Proust, and Kafka? But in the second half of the century, wow, I'm not sure who's up there with Borges. Marquez, I suppose. Can't forget Gabo. Rushdie, maybe. America nominates Toni Morrison and Saul Bellow. But real international literature, world literature, books that sweep across the planet and mean something, Borges is right up there and maybe stands apart. By sweep across the planet, I'm talking about academies, book critics, philosophers, Deep lovers of fiction. I'm not sure he ever sold as many copies as a Marquez. Maybe that didn't matter. There's such a thing as a writer's writer. Borges is more like a writer's writer's writer. Maybe a writer's 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 writer. He's also an intense reader, which is why we love him here at the History of Literature. He was a librarian. He went blind. There are a handful of things we associate with him. Labyrinths, infinite libraries, secrets of the universe in a single word, which will, of course, kill you if you hear it. Intellectual detectives, mirrors, deserts, lists of books that weren't written but should have been. People who are living and dying for books, for stories, for literature. That's Borges. That's why he's wonderful. His life is so familiar, I'll give just the briefest of sketches, then we'll have Mike Palindrome out here for a draft. Influenced by Borges, we're taking a sideways look at Borges well. That phrase, sideways look, is already taken, I guess. An angular look at Borges. It's like the sun. Maybe it's impossible to stare at Borges directly in just one episode. We ourselves would go blind. So we're going to look at him in a refractory way if that's the right word, reflective, by discussing the writers he influenced. Not the sun, the little pieces of foil that let us see the sun indirectly. Some of these pieces of foil are very grand, some are small and crinkled. They give us different views, but maybe if we stitch those views together, we can come up with a kind of composite look at Borges. That's the hope anyway. We'll see how it goes. Borges was born in 1899, just a few weeks later than Ernest Hemingway, if that helps you situate him in the literary landscape, which isn't to say that you'll see any of his influences that way. Borges is kind of his own animal. What's interesting is what he's not doing. There are currents of thought he has nothing to do with. When he was at the peak of his fame, someone mentioned to him another very famous writer, Saul Bellow, and Borges claimed not to have read him and maybe even claimed not to have heard of him. Can't find the story now to confirm, but it was something like that. Borges instead read the Bible and Shakespeare and Robert Louis Stevenson and Homer and Keats and Spinoza and Virgil and Thomas Carlyle and lots of other great books. Great books, capital G, capital B. Read them in English as well as Spanish. That's kind of the water he swam in. Great books, water. <laughs> Although Borges was born in Buenos Aires, he moved to Switzerland when he was in his teens. His family traveled through Europe for several years. He didn't return to Argentina until his early 20s. He began publishing now poems and short stories and essays and translations. His eyesight was deteriorating. He became a librarian, and in 1955, just as he was turning completely blind, he was appointed director of Argentina's National Public Library. By the 1960s, he was internationally famous as the world started to catch up with his writings, struck by how unusual and how vivid 
and how intelligent and how imaginative they were. They transported readers to a place almost outside time and space, as if you landed on a desert in the middle of nowhere, or in a vast library in some other century, maybe defined, maybe not, and there was a kind of dizzying intellectual game afoot. John Updike said, quote, What are we to make of him? The tact of his imagery... The courage of his thought are there to be admired and emulated. In resounding the note of the marvelous, last struck in English by Wells and Chesterton, in permitting infinity to enter and distort his imagination, he has lifted fiction away from the flat earth where most of our novels and short stories still take place. End quote. If you've never read Borges, you might want to read a story or two just to give yourself a taste of them. Pierre Menard, author of The Don Quixote, might be a good place to start, or The Aleph, or The Book of Sand, or The Library of Babel, or A Problem, or The House of Asterion, or Death in the Compass, or Funes, The Memory Artist, or The Garden of Forking Paths. Oh my God, there are so many. Just read a few pages. Don't try to read them all. It's a lot to take in. Just read a few pages. We'll be reading one later, Borges and I. There are so many good ones to choose from. Or just sit back and let Mike and me do the introduction for you. Listen to us talk about Borges for a while, then decide for yourselves whether you want to jump into that pool, and if so, where and when. There's so much to read. That's what we celebrate here, the great diversity of thought. So, there we have it. We'll have an email from a listener next as an appetizer. Oh, wow. What an email today. Hmm. That's our appetizer. Then our main course, Mike Palindrome and Jorge Luis Borges. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This email is from Juan. Subject, hello, Jack. Hi, Jack. I discovered your podcast around Christmas last year. I'm originally from Ecuador, but I moved to New Jersey in 2002 at the age of 20. When I saw your podcast, I started looking for episodes of authors from Latin America, and I saw the one about Gabo. He is, in fact, my favorite writer, and 100 Years of Solitude is my favorite book. Sadly, during the days that I discovered your show, I was going through a week that I will never forget. To give you some context, I will share with you our story. My beloved wife, Janaina, was diagnosed with leukemia this past June. She was enduring a tough treatment, but doctors were satisfied with the way she was responding. For six months, she was in and out of Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. When we thought that she was on the right track to a recovery and a probable cure, on December 26th, we went to the hospital for a routine blood count checkup, and she fainted. They admitted her. 
Every day she was getting sicker, but doctors always said that soon she should be discharged. I kept up faith until the end. I spent New Year's Eve and day in the hospital. We wished each other a happy New Year, imagining a much better 2020 after such a difficult 2019. I had no idea that I was going to lose her three days later. On January 3rd, she went to the ICU and was stable. I drove home because I had spent 24 straight hours in the hospital with no sleep. Later on that evening, they called me and told me that I should come to the hospital. I told my stepdaughter Giovanna, age 16, and I drove back again. I had never been so terrified in my whole life. When we got there, she was still alive, but had had a respiratory failure due to a septic shock, and there was nothing they could do. They had resuscitated her just so we could say goodbye. My wife and stepdaughter are originally from Brazil. Giovanna could have moved back to Brazil to the rest of her family, but she chose to stay with me. Now she is my inspiration, and looking after her is the best way to honor my wife's memory. I decided to read Les Miserables, hoping that some of Victor Hugo's wisdom would stick in my head. It was very difficult to concentrate on the book while mourning my wife, but that masterpiece accompanied me everywhere I went until I finished it just a week ago. I started listening to your show again after the first two months of grief. I have to say to you and to Mike, thank you for your show. The world of literature is infinite, and it can very well help me get through the loss of my life partner. Again, I scroll up and down looking for authors I've read or I've heard of. I enjoyed your episodes on Voltaire, Vonnegut, Tolstoy, among many others. I had never read Vonnegut before, but after I listened to your episode on him, I ordered Slaughterhouse-Five. I finished it two nights ago, and I loved it. Now I started The Hive by Camilo José Sela. Three months ago, I just wanted to read novels that have to do with hardship and loss, but now I just want to keep reading without stopping. Your show helps me sort out what I should read next. God, I want to read War and Peace and Anna Karenina. They're so long, and I don't care. I just want to keep enjoying these worlds. I have found a haven in literature. The memory of Janaina is constantly present. Every morning when I wake up, I still have to acknowledge that she is now somewhere else. It takes me only a few seconds to grasp my reality, but I have to do it every morning, and sometimes, any given moment, anywhere I am. I just say to myself, make sure she would be proud of you. So I try to live my life that way. I was listening to your episode on Marcel Proust, but I had to stop because I really want to read him, and I'm afraid you'll give some of it away. I listened to an episode where Mike talked about 2666. I've read that book twice in Spanish and listened to it three times in audiobook in English. I hope you have read it by now. Bolaño is amazing, and what's more amazing is that he never even finished high school and drifted around Mexico and Europe for the better part of his life before he achieved success as a writer. One more thing. On Sunday, I heard you read Faulkner's speech where he accepted the Nobel Prize. Now, I don't know whether you speak or understand Spanish. Parentheses. I know you can say El Presidente. But if you can listen to Gabo's acceptance speech, please do it. That speech alone deserves the Nobel Prize of Literature. Thank you again to you and Mike for your show. Feel free to read my email while on the air. I don't mind. Please stay healthy. God bless. Mm, dear Juan, my God, what an email. What an email. I've read it several times, and every time I get choked up, and every time I'm struck by a different passage. They had resuscitated her just so we could say goodbye. Is a deeply, deeply moving phrase. I'm feeling deep sympathy for you and for your stepdaughter and your dear departed wife. It does sound like days of shock and being terrified and a loss that came way too soon. And now, your devotion to your stepdaughter as a way to honor the love that you lost, it's a beautiful story. It has resonated with me on a very human level. And so has your turn to literature. It's a reminder that these are not just stuffy old books sitting on a shelf making us feel guilty for not having read them. It's an engagement with the great minds and inventors of worlds and thinkers and feelers of the past and present. These are people who have dealt with pain 
and dealt with loss and who have delineated that experience for us and who have helped us situate pain and loss and grief among the rest of the human experience, like jealousy and frustration, the bright bloom of youth and the crackling leaves of our autumnal years, the heat of summer and the death cycle of winter. They've written about that for us. They wanted us to know. They wanted us to match their love of the world and their love of life. They wanted us to run our fingers along the sharp edge of their anger or their bitterness or their existential doubts, just as they want to pour out the colors of joy and love and wonder and let us see those rainbows too. Literature is there for you, Juan, and I'm glad you're finding some comfort in literature and some comfort in this podcast. There's a whole world out there, out here, people who are thinking of you with moist eyes and a heavy heart and hoping you will get through this time of loss, as we all do at certain times in our lives, because we can and because we must. We puny humans have no choice. Our solace is in our imagination, which can let us forget, maybe for a little while, and which can let us reflect, and which can expand our minds and our souls, even as everything around us is pushing us to contract. Best wishes to you and Giovanna, and let's hope for a renewal in 2020 or 2021, so we all come out of this dark space we're in and eke our way towards the light. Thank you for the email. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of the great Jorge Luis Borges, who, among other things, was once the president of the Argentine Society of Writers, is our old friend, the great Mike Palindrome, the current president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, we decided to look at Borges by focusing on the many writers or filmmakers or other artists who were inspired by Borges. And I have a really strong number one. And so if you take wow. my number one, I'm just going to piggyback on your number one because it's going to throw me off too much. But I think you go first. Maybe we'll make an exception today. You, you oh, just let go me go first. first? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to our picks, do you have any general thoughts about Borges as you went through? Or do you want to save those until we talk about the inspirations? I, I know I've said in the past, like, so-and-so is the most important writer, the most, you know, you know, the most original writer, the person who will be most remembered. I, I think Borges is the most something. I, yeah. I just don't know what. Yeah. But he definitely is one of these writers that, you know, when, when you recommend him to a person, they come back with you with these with a different expression on their face, like, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, like, showing me Borges. Yeah, it is kind of like Edgar Allan Poe or, you know, you yeah. wouldn't say he's the greatest writer necessarily or 
the the greatest novelist or the greatest short story writer or it would be hard to to find a description that would fit Poe but there's yeah. nobody else like him and there's nobody who does what he's doing as good as as he himself is doing you know he's he's really kind of a a genre in and of himself and that's Borges is kind of like that I think he's he's one in, you, you really have to read him I mean I think it's you know people are saying you know, say you have to read Tolstoy before you die or whatever. You have to read Borges before you die. Yeah. And and that's a good example because Tolstoy, I do think of as sort of the greatest novelist and you do have to read him. But if you read, you know, if if you read, uh, let's say, Dickens, Flaubert and George Eliot and a couple others and, you know, Jane Austen, you know, like say you read five or six great novelists, you kind of will get the flavor of Tolstoy, even without reading Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. And with Borges, you really do kind of have to read Borges. There's, <laughs> I, I couldn't yeah. give you, I couldn't give you five short story writers who would really capture what it's like to enter Borges's world. Yeah. I mean, I, the more I read him, I, I just think, you know, he really pulls it off. It's almost, you know, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a magic trick that he does with words. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to our draft. These are writers, filmmakers, or other artists who were inspired by Borges. I'm going to go with my number one. I'm going to take Umberto Eco. Um, (laughs) Just because I think uh, temperamentally, intellectually, you could just imagine a young Umberto Eco discovering Borges and just being blown away and thinking, this guy, you know, this is my soulmate. This guy thinks like me. He's a kindred spirit. And in Echo's most famous work, The Name of the Rose, he has a character named Jorge of Burgos, who Mm. is wise and who speaks Spanish and who is blind, like Borges. And the book also has the famous Borgesian library, which is kind of a library like a labyrinth or an infinite library. Those are very much associated with Borges, like a lot of his tropes, uh, like old books and old languages and the library, like a labyrinth that has many turns and traps. It kind of reminds me of the old seminary co-op at the University of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the Borges Library as just being like that, except, you know, even more vast. But that that's kind of all the nooks and crannies of the old seminary co-op in the basement kind of reminds me of that. Did you know that a British architect, Randall Coate, has designed several mazes and hedges and parks in honor of Borges. I really? Mean, he was inspired by Borges. <laughs> yeah, I was reading about him. <laughs> and it really is, uh, I mean, the, the, he was a, he, he was incredibly well-read, incredibly fast, curious about anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And what, what Echo gets right, it's more than just the, that's the thing. It's more than just the surface of Borges. It's the way it integrates with the intellect and and the reader and the almost the existential meaning of what it means to read. I think of, you know, it's not just that Borges was this old blind man who might be the greatest reader who ever lived or a dazzling library, but it's the way that literary meaning is combined with existential meaning and reading is an experience as great as, or or maybe even greater than living. Literature can be more powerful than life itself for Borges, which is, I think Echo kind of thought that too, and, and sort of reminds me of Borges. It's the way I sort of think of Borges mm-hmm. is, nobody inspires me to read more than Borges. You know, he makes you want to go out and read all these adventure stories or the Arabian Nights or ancient texts. And it's just, uh, you, you want to, feed your mind all of these beautiful old books yeah there's a there's a great paris review interview of borges Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. um, describe his library and it's just filled with encyclopedias yeah and filled with like different anthologies and compendiums like the geometry of four dimensions and (laughs) you know um the american heritage history of the civil war and I mean, it's just, you know, he, he really was this person who um, was always searching for a good yarn to read. Mm-hmm. And right. He, he, like he, he also was, loved Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah. He, and I, I love this comment. He says that he loved the um, the older editions of the Encyclopedia Britannica 
because those were meant to be read. And mm. the newer editions are merely reference books where people look up stuff. Right. And for him to have made that distinction to, you know, I want to read a good entry about old Norse mythology. I don't yeah. want like facts. Right. Right. In yeah. a, in a kind of template. Yeah. Yeah. More like a, an essay. That makes a lot of sense because his stories are often either like that themselves or they're filled with readers who are looking for things like that or who have discovered something like that. He, he at one point he, he said he realized that it would be better to write a short story about a book or mm -hmm. to list books in a short story than to actually write the books themselves <laughs> and that he could, it could be more compact. And that's another thing that Borges does that is so much a part of the Borgesian world is it's so dense. It's, you know, the story might be eight or 10 pages or, or even less, but mm -hmm. it's still got such richness. And there's these references that kind of suggest other things or pull in other things like the desert or, you know, there'll be sort of an aside that, that takes you on this little detour and the stories, although they're short, they feel really rich. You almost need to, to read like a Borges story and then like a Raymond Carver story back to back to really feel like, you know, that would be like jumping in the swimming pool and then getting into the hot tub and then jumping back in the swimming <laughs> pool. <laughs> okay. So what is your first pick? So I, I went with two people. I went with uh, Donald Barthame and George Saunders. Mm, okay. And, you know, and I, I and I, I think it to me it's it's really just the 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 competition to try to be more original. You know, humor as a as a tool of being original. And I always I, I think the his or is the story Pierre Menard Menard, author of Don Quixote. If I can talk about Don Quixote without being attacked, uh, <laughs> it is the kind of the quintessential modern, postmodern story. I, if people haven't read it, it's about a guy who decides he's going to rewrite parts of Don Quixote, not like the, um, Cervantes, but exactly word for word. Word like for word. But he doesn't want to. But he doesn't want to copy it. He's not no. writing it out. Yeah. He's and so... he, he doesn't want, he wants to write it from his own perspective. That's right. the great part. He doesn't say, I'm going to live like Cervantes. I'm going to put my mind back in the 16th century and eat the food that Cervantes did and read all the books that Cervantes did. He wants to write the Don Quixote, he wants to write Don Quixote word for yeah. word from the modern day person's perspective. He says, to compose Don Quixote at the beginning of the 17th century was a reasonable, necessary, and perhaps inevitable undertaking. At the beginning of the 20th century, it is almost impossible. It is not in vain that 300 years have passed charged with the most complex happenings, among them to mention only one, that same Don Quixote. <laughs> it's, it's, just, right. <laughs> it's just this balancing act of absurdity where right. you're just like, really? Is, He's just writing it word for word. Like what? Like what is there to even say about that? And yet, it goes on and on in a way that you almost don't want it to end. And, and when it ends, it's like, well, what happened next? It's like, I mean, I feel like this is the, you know, he he says that if other people copy things word for word, this technique that it would be amazing. He says this technique would fill the dullest books with adventure. <laughs> I mean, you really right. just, I mean, it's its so crazy, this story. I wrote that this is the most original short story of all time. It is um, a good, high-concept story. It's kind of like a thought experiment, and you're right, that really does pave the way for Bartholomé and Saunders, who both kind of come up with conceits like that and then see them through to their end. Yeah, I mean, Bartholomé, you can, you can see him just turning to Bart's about uh, Borges over and over again yeah. as inspiration. I mean, some of his, and, and just the daring of, of right. Borges that, you know, right. if you have an idea, you just, you kind of run with it. Right. And you can yeah. let readers catch up, you know, yeah. you, you don't try to tailor what would be most interesting to you. You know, you don't dumb it down. You just, you just run with it. 
and let everyone try to uh, try to figure out the meaning. And if that means they have to look up some look look some things up or learn some more or read something in order to kind of be in on the joke or the story and to fully get it, that's okay. You know, you can assume that your readers are really smart and that they're going to get most of it and the rest of it they'll fill in. The the knock against him sometimes I hear is that he's not um he's a bit cold and analytical. I think yeah. the humor for me really dispels that because you really feel the the playfulness and the way he wants to explore what it means to you know have have written something and the and fighting against like something very successful as people love Don Quixote not me but other people do yeah like <laughs> we know you don't uh, like it I know what you mean he loves books he loves literature he loves libraries he loves stories and storytelling and there is something I agree with you. The biggest criticism of Borges is that his stories lack emotion or heart. And Nabokov said, this was an interview published in 1969 in Time magazine. He said, at first Vera, he was talking about his wife, he said, at first Vera and I were delighted by reading Borges. We felt we were on a portico, but we have learned that there was no house. <laughs> and I think he means, you know, it. it sometimes it can feel a little bit claustrophobic a little bit uh not navel gazing exactly but uh kind of kind of all tied up in its own intellectual pursuits and not doing the business of literature the way that uh you know mall flanders or something might do where it's diving into the the <laughs> the the marriages and the the wins and losses of a young man on the rise or a young girl being uh, afflicted by different villains, you know, which is kind of a little bit surprising. I do feel like there's a sense of adventure. Sometimes I feel like it's mm, more yeah. like Indiana Jones, you know, like a really, really smart Indiana Jones that you feel like you're traveling around the world gathering archaeological finds that are just sort of of an intellectual type. But it feels like you're getting dust on your shoes and you're, you're, you feel the breeze in your hair from the journey that you're taking. But it's not the same as I know what Nabokov is talking about. You're not getting the same thing as you might get from like a Dickens, for example. In his interviews, he, 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 it's interesting what he thinks of other writers, um, because when you know the character question I'll, I'll get to with my next pick. But he, he said this about Henry James. He said, I think his short stories are much better than his novels. I mean, you have to wait through 300 pages. His novels would be better if you could tell one character from the other. You have to wait through 300 pages to find out who Lady So-and-So's lover was. And then at the end, you may guess it was So-and-So and not What's-His-Name. You can't tell them apart. They all speak in the same way. Yeah. And I was like, wow. I mean, clearly, like... <laughs> well, and there's there's something to be said about, you know, Borges, especially in our era, when yeah. we maybe don't have time for, you know, it's funny. I've got time to watch Breaking Bad all the way through and then watch it all the way through a second time. Uh, <laughs> but I don't have time to read a, a 700 page novel. <laughs> but I've always got time to read a six page short story. And Borges yeah. saying, I can pack as many ideas into that six page short story as a lot yeah. of novelists can do in 500 pages. There's something kind of nice about that. It's like, vitamin pills or something <laughs> <laughs> why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back with the i, I don't think i mentioned we're only going to take three each so we're yep. almost halfway through so let's take a quick break and come back with the rest of our picks for inspired by borges Okay, we're back. Uh, for my second pick, I'm going to change things up a little bit. And mm -hmm. I think there were a lot of writers who came after Borges who were influenced by him. A million. You know, he really is one of the most influential writers, even the ones that you might think weren't. You know, it's easy to point to someone who writes short stories that are in a Borgesian style as someone who's inspired or Echo, who's actually putting a character in his book that's similar to Borges, but even the ones who weren't, I think, probably got some some energy or some daring or or maybe a, 
an eagerness to to invent books to put into their works or something like that. So you really could point to a lot of them, but I'm going to switch things up a little bit mm -hmm. and go out of chronology. I'm going to choose a writer who came before Borges. Mm. I'm inspired by Borges myself here. I'm basing this on Borges's theory, which was mm -hmm. that an author could influence a writer who came before him. Mm. The way he explained it was that our reading of those predecessors changes because of what we learn from the author who came later. And the way that I was thinking of this is the way that I listened to 50s music, mm -hmm. which I came to 50s music really through the Beatles, who came after Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Carl Perkins and Buddy Holly and Elvis and Smokey Robinson. And, you know, the Beatles sort of, that was who they listened to and that was who they absorbed in the Motown girl groups and all of that. But then they kind of put it into their own form. It kind of went through their prism of genius and came out as something else, which is what I listened to first. And then when I listened to something like Chuck Berry or Smokey Robinson or a song like Twist and Shout, I will hear it differently from how somebody in the 50s would have heard it. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if the artist, in a way, or the maybe not the artist, maybe I should say the work is inspired or influenced by the Beatles as it is in my reading. And the literary example that Borges gave for this was Kafka. And he said, mm -hmm. you know, Kafka was completely new, completely original. No one was like him. He changed everything. And then he said, but if you look at all of these writers before Kafka, you see that they had all of the, the seeds of Kafka there. And he went through and he, he named a bunch of authors who were Kafka-esque before Kafka, but nobody thought of them as Kafka-esque mm -hmm. at the time. You know, they only see that in retrospect. And it was almost as if Kafka taught everyone how to see the Kafka-esque, and it changed the way that we look at writers who came before Kafka. And, and what this really is about is works of literature as being kind of a, an act that needs a reader to share with it. It's like a battery where it's, it needs two components. It's not just, the, not just the work sitting on the shelf, but the reader who picks up the work and starts looking at it. And so that's how you can do this time traveling here. Mm -hmm. The way that the work will impact the reader changes based on what's come in between. So the author I'm going to take who influenced by Borges through this sort of weird Borgesian tunnel or mirror is your old friend Cervantes. <laughs> so I'm going to resurrect Don Quixote, which you mm -hmm. slaughtered, and say that it's the perfect text for Borges to use as the springboard for his magical story, which we've already talked about, Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, which I never really liked Cervantes, but I like him a lot better after having read the uh, Borges story, mm -hmm. that it, in a way, mm -hmm. for me, uh, Cervantes was inspired by Borges to make a better book than he would have had Borges never lived, which is kind of funny to think about since he lived hundreds of years before Borges. But there we go. That's my number two, Cervantes. Maybe I should reread or try uh, the Cervantes <laughs> three chapters that Pierre Menard uh, wrote. It's like chapter right. 8, 22. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like a fragment of another one. Uh, I'm surprised you haven't tried to write Don Quixote. We could do. Uh, we could have Mike Palindrome, author of the Quixote. <laughs> I. It's a good time to mention. I. I, I can't find my copy. Of Don Quixote. I was looking for it. <laughs> it's mysteriously disappeared. Someone um, probably broke into your house and liberated it from your. Yeah. They viewed it as being like a hostage that you had taken. <laughs> you know the 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 question of influences coming after is interesting because you know he he was a polyglot and he translated Andre mm. Gide and Kafka and Whitman and mm. Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner also spoke Old Norse Old English. I always think that translating a writer and you know, you, you hear about these automatic fiction exercises in Tobias Wolff's old school. They talk about high school kids retyping Hemingway stories to mm. kind of get the rhythm of mm -hmm. his fiction. You, you think of all these people who must have influenced Borges, maybe not only on the level of language, but in terms of like 
well, what could I produce? Yeah. You know, because here facing me are all these great works of literature, you know, his idea that he had to kind of absorb all of that and produce something. And I think of like a story like the Library of Babel, which is this incredible homage to all of literature. Yeah. This, you know, the, the, a library that has everything ever written. Every, everything that it would ever be possible to write. I think of this line in it, which reminds me of my next pick, which is, so the line is, the library is so enormous that any reduction undertaken by humans is infin, infin, infinitesimal. All right, it's two lines. Two, each book is unique, irreplaceable, but in so much as the library is total, there are always several hundreds of thousands of imperfect facsimiles of works which differ only by one letter or one comma. Hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> which leads me to my next my second pick, which is David Foster Wallace. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's hear it. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, David Foster Wallace, as you know, is uh, a lover of footnotes mm. and asides. Yep. And I think, what, well, what is Borges other than kind of a constant uh, aside that almost anticipates yeah. what the reader is going to think? Yeah. Like, here's the setup. The reader thinks, okay, this is what I expect next. And then Borges footnotes the entire story and goes on to something else. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Borges, he does do that. He he himself is also a great user of footnotes. But the way that he packs little references into footnotes and things to kind of trigger new thoughts that he yeah, sneaks into exactly. footnotes is, yep, that's good. It's less like the unreliable narrator narrator than what I call like the self-undermining narrator. And, you know, mm. it, like he has lines like, you know, a fallacious, a fallacious uh, catalog that a certain newspaper whose Protestant tendencies are, are no secret was inconsiderate enough to inflict on its wretched readers, even though they are few and Calvinist, if not Masonic and circumcised. Mm. It's like what? <laughs> <laughs> you but have to really. It's, I mean, every, everything is every phrase is a footnote. Yeah, I was going to say this when you were saying how his humor kind of makes up for the not having a lot of heart or a lot of emotion, other than kind of intellectual pleasure. Even though that that's kind of the case, and even though he's a supremely intellectual writer, you really have to be on your A game when you're reading Borges. Yeah. He has a kind of charm and a kind of humility uh, in his narrators or just in the somehow in the work itself that is very winning and very, yeah. you know, you don't feel like Borges is, is bragging or is sort of writing to show you how smart he is. But instead, you really feel included that. You know, he's maybe moving a little fast. You, you maybe are struggling to keep up a little bit. And sometimes it seems like, oh, why did he make this such a thicket for me to get through? There's there's five different thoughts in two lines here that I need to unpack. Yeah. And it's hard to it's not always an easy read. But at the same time, it always feels to me like he's good company that I don't mm -hmm. I don't find the narrators to be too pompous or too uh professorial or anything like that. I feel like he does want me to be having a good time as I'm reading the story. Yeah, I mean, the, that closeness you talk about with him and the reader, I think, you know, just to end with a Wallace quote, which I, I know you're looking forward to, it, it, I think <laughs> he really sums it up. He, Wallace says, because Wallace was a big professed, self-professed Borges fan, he says, whether for seminal artistic reasons or neurotic personal ones or both, Borges collapses reader and writer into a new kind of aesthetic agent, one who makes stories out of stories, one for whom reading is essentially, consciously, a creative act. This is not, however, because Borges is a metafictionist or a cleverly disguised critic. It is because he knows that there's finally no difference, that murder and victim, detective and fugitive, Performer and audience are the same. It's all made up. Mm, right. It's fiction, you know. So let's yep. let's play let's play the game together. 
Well, that is going to lead right into my third pick. But before we leave Wallace, <laughs> I'm going to uh, adapt a quote from one of the other authors that we disagree about, Franzen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You remember when Franzen was caught up in that Oprah controversy, and at one point he said this, he had this sort of condescending line where he said, they said, do you like Oprah? And he said, you know, because everybody likes Oprah. I mean, come on, she's Oprah. And it's like, do you like, except for Franzen, <laughs> he's too snobby to like Oprah. Anyway, so do you like Oprah? And he says, I like her for liking my book. and uh i you know you know how i feel about david foster wallace but i'll say i like that he likes borges (laughs) (laughs) okay but let's get into my third pick because you have set it up perfectly i'm going to change things up again i'm going to go with another borgesian trope in his essay partial enchantment Partial enchantments of Quixote, he talked about the times in world literature when a character reads about himself or sees himself in a play. And he Mm -hmm. says, why does it disquiet us to know that Don Quixote is a reader of the Quixote and Hamlet is a spectator of Hamlet? And he says, I believe I found the answer. Those inversions suggest that if the characters in a story can be readers or spectators, then we, their readers, can be fictitious. And this is... Again, it's Borges as the ultimate reader, the ultimate thinker about literature and books, and the one who has raised the stakes the highest. In some ways, I think all of Borges' stories are just their variations on this theme that he loves reading so much that, mm-hmm. you know, he finds ways to capture that feeling or his thinking about that feeling and his thinking about how powerful it is. He finds ways to put that into his his stories. And so... I'm going to sort of use as a springboard the story uh, Borges and I, where he mm-hmm. talks about the Borges, the famous writer, and Borges, the Borges, the world famous writer, and Borges, the Ar- Argentinian librarian, librarian who nobody really knows, and say that Borges's great influence was himself. And his, <laughs> and it's not clear whether you know the Borges who was the great reader mm-hmm. was influenced by Borges the great writer or vice versa. The Borges maybe Borges the writer was the greatest writer who was ever influenced by Borges, but it was Borges the real person who was the influencer. And at the end of that, and this kind of reminds me of the famous story, Death in the Compass, Uh which he has, which is all about doubles. Uh, Borges was, he was a big one for doubles. That's another one Mm -hmm. of his tropes. And and here he follows Poe. He has a lot of doubles. And that's a detective story. and, And the two characters get kind of, uh, mixed up in with one another, and until by the end you realize that the characters in the detective story are not just characters who are trying to trick one another and mm-hmm. discover the truth about one another, but they kind of represent all detective fiction. That it's the hunter and the hunted, the way that it's played down through fiction since fiction began and for as long as fiction exists they're they're going to have this trope and these two characters are going to be part of that it's it's another kind of dizzying idea that borges was so good at and this story borges and i in fact it's so short why don't we take a quick break and i'll read the story and then we can talk about the ending sounds good Borges and I. It's Borges, the other one, that things happen to. I walk through Buenos Aires and I pause, mechanically now, perhaps, to gaze at the arch of an entryway and its inner door. News of Borges reaches me by mail, or I see his name on a list of academics or in some biographical dictionary. My taste runs to hourglasses, maps, 18th century typefaces, etymologies, the taste of coffee, in the prose of Robert Louis Stevenson. Borges shares those preferences, but in a vain sort of way that turns them into the accoutrements of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that our relationship is hostile. I live, I allow myself to live, so that Borges can spin out his literature. And that literature is my justification. 
I willingly admit that he has written a number of sound pages, but those pages will not save me, perhaps because the good in them no longer belongs to any individual, not even to that other man, but rather to language itself or to tradition. Beyond that, I am doomed, utterly and inevitably, to oblivion, and fleeting moments will be all of me that survives in that other man. Little by little, I have been turning everything over to him, though I know the perverse way he has of distorting and magnifying everything. Spinoza believed that all things wish to go on being what they are. Stone wishes eternally to be stone, and tiger to be tiger. I shall endure in Borges, not in myself, if, indeed, I am anybody at all. But I recognize myself less in his books than in many others or in the tedious strumming of a guitar. Years ago I tried to free myself from him, and I moved on from the mythologies of the slums and outskirts of the city to games with time and infinity. But those games belong to Borges now, and I shall have to think up other things. So my life is a point-counterpoint, a kind of fugue, and a falling away, and everything winds up being lost to me, and everything falls into oblivion, or into the hands of the other man. I am not sure which of us it is that's writing this page. Okay, so that's Borges and I. It's got the famous last line again. I think this is really all about what it means to be a reader and what it means to be uh, a writer and kind of the whole process of literature and the way that it the way that we're all part of it, and what we're trying to read, who we're trying to learn about, whether it's the author or the writer on the page, what we actually can learn from fiction, and, mm -hmm. you know, that famous last line of uh, which of us is writing this page, I don't know. You know, <laughs> he knows he's a character, he knows his persona is part of his legacy, it's part of the way we read him, especially the you know, all the trappings of him being this blind librarian is such a big part of his myth. But who do we? Who's Borges? Is it the librarian? Is it the author? Of course, it's sort of both. But can it be two different people? And which one is which? This I feel like you know this was putting a match to dry tinder for all of the people who came in the seventies and eighties who were just looking for inspiration to really. Mm -hmm see what fiction did and, and take it apart and, and see how it worked. And like, you've already chosen a few people who uh, kind of made that their whole project. I feel like this is something that David Foster Wallace would have done. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I read that uh, Borges was a big fan of West side story and had seen it like hundreds of times <laughs> right. and to me, I guess he was David Foster Wallace or David Foster Wallace is, is, is a, is a Borges uh, watered-down version of Borges. Yeah, he's uh, he's Borges. If it's like when record players used to get stuck, and they would mm -hmm. just go on and on and on, and they'd never get to the end of the song. It's like David yeah. Foster Wallace is like he learned everything there was to learn from Borges, except that you could do this in a uh, in ten pages, and instead he took a thousand pages. Yeah, I mean the introduction to <laughs> my copy of Fiction Fiction is says a similar thing of. He says, uh, oh, no, oh, my God, the introduction, the prologue was written by Borges himself. He says, uh, <laughs> to, go on, to go on for 500 pages developing an idea whose perfect oral exposition is possible in a few minutes, a better course of procedure is to pretend that yeah. these books already exist and then to offer a resume, a commentary. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. it's, that is better. And sometimes it's just the titles. You know, he loves yeah. listing out the titles of these books. Yeah. So so for my third pick, I went with a uh, uh, fellow Argentine, uh, Julio Cortazar. Yeah, that was the yeah. one I was feeling the worst about not taking. He's he's really yeah. the heir, I think. I mean, he to, to me, it's Borges plus characters. I mean, he mm -hmm. really just because I'm hard pressed to name a single character in a Borges story by name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. other than Pierre Menard. Pierre Menard, yeah. <laughs> which is in the title, but... Oh, me, the memory guy, Funes. 
Unesta, the uh, you know, it's it's sort of an impossible thing to translate, but that's another guy. But yeah, the name almost has to be in the title, and and really, it's those characters, Pierre Menard and Funes, are almost like uh, objects, you know. So, so like Cortazar has the humor, he has the genre bending where it's an essay or impressionistic prose poem almost and then yep. it goes back into fiction and has non-linear plots obviously yep. with with hopscotch you know a novel that's written and meant to be skipped around back and forth and yeah um and then Portisar's short stories you know the there, there's that famous story where the reader is reading like a thriller <laughs> yep. and the story ends because the reader is shot yeah right <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you just get the sense that Cortazar was... Borges was like brilliant. a hero. Yeah. yeah, he was a brilliant guy to begin with, but then he read Borges, and that kind of gave him license to try anything. Yep. And I, I, I think, you know, he is really, you know, holds the, the Borges torch about the the lowbrow fantasy. Cortazar has so much sex mm. in, it, mm-hmm. in his book. Yeah. Um, but to be grounded in something very intellectual because Cortazar is very much kind of a grad school a favorite. I mean, people that I've encountered, they're incredibly well-read, incredibly well-educated, and they love talking about Cortazar. Yeah. It's not as if, I mean, we had this last time when we talked about Edith Wharton and you were saying, you know, it's Edith Wharton is kind of like maybe a paler version of, a pale shade of uh, Henry James. You could look at Borges and Cortazar as being a little bit like that, but it, you'd be missing something if you do, because Borges, even though, you know, Borges could almost have been writing 200 years ago or something. Like his books aren't, I associate him with the 20th century because he was so influential and because he himself was writing then. But Cortazar, you kind of, you get a lot more jazz I picture him as being sort of the guy with the cigarette in Paris. Mm-hmm. He he feels a little more modern than Borges does, I guess. He has less of Borges's um, love of epic stories, and right. Um, Borges has a great quote though about you know going back to the 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 David Foster Wallace connection, and you know the, in interviews Borges would say like I hate ideas. And an interview would say like, oh, what do you think about this parable, this story that you wrote that's clearly a parable? And he would say, that's not a parable. I mean, and then he would pause and he would say like, well, it may happen to become a parable. (laughs) That was his his take on (laughs) his writing, like stop being serious, stop injecting ideas, like you're you're missing the point, which is pleasure. I mean, he, he would say in interviews that, you know, he writes chiefly for pleasure. Hmm. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. Well, those are good picks. I have got a Borges quiz for you. (laughs) Shoot. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Number one. What was Borges referring to when he wrote, quote, what binds us isn't love, but fear. That must be why I love you so. Was it A, his hometown of Buenos Aires, B, his mother, who lived to the age of 99, or C, Dante's Inferno? Mm, I'm going to go with his mother. Mm. The answer was his hometown of Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, what did Borges do upon seeing the Sahara Desert during a trip to Egypt in 1984? A, said that he was overcome by emotion and that he could now die a happy man, regretting only that if he did, his death would occur in the year 1984. Asked by his companion what year would be preferable, he replied, 1084 or 2984, for this desert is a place where one might spend a thousand years before dying. B, he took a handful of sand from one place to another a few steps away and said, quote, I am a modifier of the Sahara, end quote. Or C, said, Quote, I have never before felt so acutely the pain of my blindness, and yet I know that not seeing the Sahara in person is more enlightening than seeing it. In terms of experience, not seeing the Sahara in person is second only to not seeing it from afar. End quote. It's got to be C. 
<laughs> no, it was B. He took a handful of sand from one place to another and said, I am a modifier of this that era. Was my, that was my second pick, if, if I can make that assertion. Okay, we'll give you half credit. And finally, number three, what do the brothers Karamazov, uh, Madame Bovary, Remembrance of Things Past, and The Magic Mountain have in common? A, the books Borges chose when a radio interviewer asked him to name works by European authors he would take to a desert island. Shakespeare and Dante were already supplied. B, the four <laughs> books mentioned in an unpublished story found among Borges' papers about an author named Borges who works in a bookstore that only sells works of epic poetry. Or C, four books Borges started but didn't finish. Wow, I'll go with C. That's right. Four <laughs> books Borges started, but said he didn't finish. Uh, I just went with the length because, you know, it seems to be one of these uh, touchstones for him. <laughs> <laughs> the Magic Mountain, Mike. He didn't finish. <laughs> well, I, I, I realize I, I never finished Labyrinth, so. Yeah. <laughs> so take that Boris. which is even shorter yeah okay well there we go a dizzying display of Borges and his many influences i have Borges's collected fiction i have a feeling a lot of listeners are going to be wondering where to begin with Borges. i've got his collected fiction a penguin edition is beautiful it's several hundred pages you could never mm. read it straight through your mind would explode i think it's it's like <laughs> eating a a whole plate full of frosting or I think you you have to take your time with the stories and savor them, treasure them, think about them. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what Borges would want to engage with the text in that way. Just read the stories, but yeah. um, you know, it's hard, but it's also very rewarding. Yeah. Li like that. I, I just want to give honorable mention um, Lydia Davis. Mm. I just, I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, she must love Borges. She must love Borges. I'm a little surprised Me. you didn't take your guy, uh, Bolaño. Oh, I had him on my list. I had Mar Garcia Marquez. I had Paul Oster. I, mm, I, had, yeah. I had a number of people. Yep. Um, I, I, I really wanted to pick a Brit because I didn't know this, but he, he had an English grandmother who read to him English literary classics yeah. as, a, as a young child. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if you had to pick one story for people to start with, uh, would it be uh, Pierre Menard or something else? Yeah, I would start with Pierre Menard. I would, yeah. uh, the Library of Babel. Yeah, uh, the Aleph is good. Yeah, Michael Michael Chabon is a big fan of the Aleph, and the the Atlantic had a great essay by Michael Chabon about that. Hmm. That's worth checking out. Okay, so those are good recommendations. Let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Juan for his beautiful email. I wish him well. And my thanks to Mike for joining me again. We've got some good episodes coming up, so please do subscribe if you haven't already, and maybe help spread the word. If every listener... People, listen. If every, I did some math. If every listener to this podcast told just one million friends about it, and if those friends told one million of their friends we would be the number one rated podcast I see a couple of problems with this the first of course is that not everyone has one million friends understood if you're one of those anti-social types you might only have 700,000 or so just do your best okay second problem there might be some overlap some of you might consider the same person a friend well they can only subscribe once so that does us no good if you tell a friend and they say they've already been told, you'll have to switch to your list of enemies to make up the difference. The point is to get to one million. Maybe go a little over in case some people decide not to subscribe. Maybe an extra 15 or 20, just in case. Last big problem with the plan, I can hear you saying, is there aren't enough people on the planet. Again, not a problem. We can also tell all the dogs and cats, assuming they're not too jaded. Wait... 
Wait, this won't work. Of course this won't work. I know that. So let's shift gears. Don't tell one million friends. That's not sustainable. Forget I ever said that. Just tell one friend. One friend who likes books. One friend. And maybe one friend and maybe mention it to your dog or your cat just to see. But if they're not really going for it, just drop it. Don't waste your time. And if they give you that look, you know the look I mean. If they give you that look, just laugh and pretend you didn't really suggest the History of Literature podcast. They must have misheard you. And leave the room quickly and go make them some food so they forget you ever brought it up. Don't wait for your pet to come and find you and stare at you with that look that says, Does this mean you're buying me that smartphone after all? Hmm? Just get their food ready. Throw it down on the floor. Get the hell out of there before things take a turn. You don't want things to take a turn. Believe me, the turn I'm talking about is not a turn that you want things to take. Trust me on that one. Okay, there we go. I'm Jack Wilson. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 